You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. There's that classic misconception about courage, that a brave person is not afraid. In reality, to not experience fear isn't to be brave, it's to be foolish. Being brave is to experience the fear but push past it and continue anyways. And that is the lesson brilliantly shown in Rodin's tribute to the burgers of Calais. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. I thought a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, once again, I have friend of the pod and a teacher's teacher, Mr. David Pittman. Thanks for joining me. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I, actually, the more I get to know, uh, excited about this piece today because I've never heard of it and I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about um, Rodin today. His full name would be Francois-Auguste-René Rodin, but often referred to just in the shorthand of Rodin. And you probably best know him for The Thinker. I mean, that is like the iconic sculpture. If you if you know one sculpture in all of art history, it's probably The Thinker or David. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And being a bit of the contrarian, I did not go with the thinker for this one. I went with the Burgers of Calais, um, just because that is a piece that is is near and dear to my heart, um, and was really important in like my conception of art history and modernism and what it's all about. So we'll get into all of that a little bit later. Uh, Rodin was born November twelfth, eighteen forty. Uh, He was the second child in a working class family. And I think it's important to understand that because educational opportunities were not the same um, in that time as they are today. You know, like like free public school systems were not always in society. And his education was a little bit kind of dash together what he could learn, where he could learn it. Um, from what I understand, a lot of his early education, he was kind of largely self-taught, and he began drawing around age 10, 
And then from the ages of 14 to 17, he attended, and I can, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, Petite Ecole. Um, basically, he was at a school that focused on art and math. And I don't think it's going to come as a huge shock when we're talking about a famous artist. He studied art there. He studied <laughs> primarily painting and drawing there. Which um, is actually kind of like when you put it that way of like he's in a working class family. Like even today, if I think about a working class family sending their kid to an art school, art high school is pretty rare. And it's, you know, it's a stretch, you, you know, you to go beyond the public school. And so for this, like it's even a greater stretch from back then. I think there's a little truth to that, but I think, you know, one of the popular conceptions that people have is like art is useless, you know, <laughs> like art is something that we learn at, um, if we have the luxury to focus on the finer things, but art was also utilitarian. You know, you think about, especially in that, that era, like how do you become a skilled craftsman? How do you become, you know, the fabricator for the wallpaper company or how are you make? I mean, Rodin spent his career in the arts, but not always in the fine arts. He was in what a lot of people would refer to today as maybe the applied arts or the industrial mm-hmm. arts. And he was making things for, you know, ornamentation on buildings. He was making embellishments that might go on the roof or above a doorway and stuff like that. You know, when you look at all those old buildings, we mm-hmm. talk about that old world craftsmanship. That's what he was doing. So when he went to his parents and he's like, I want to go to the arts and uh, math school, it was more about like it, it, it could bring in income and like it's like a practical thing. Whereas today in our modern society, if, uh, if someone usually goes to their parents and, and, and I don't know if it was your experience, but my experience was like, hey, I want to go to uh, study arts. Even if it was the theater arts, it was like, you're going to do what? You're going to like, yeah. so it's just, yeah, it was like, so it's actually a practical piece. That's actually very interesting because you think, like you said, like art school is like this, well, how are you going to make money? And how are you going in our society today? But back then it was like, oh, that's a good way to make money. Well, it's a little bit of both, I would say. I mean, you know, in these schools, he was not at Beaux-Arts in Paris. You know, he applied. He was rejected multiple times. But um, like he was not at the premier like fine arts school. He was studying art. And I think the thing is, like I say, the arts were a practical skill for a lot of people to to learn um, for a lot of jobs in skilled labor and manufacturing and, mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, and he was still, and from what I gather, always enamored with the fine arts. He was painting, he was drawing, he was sculpting, um, not quite finding his niche yet, though. Because as I said, he went to that school from age 14 to 17, and that was a bit of an um, impactful experience for him. Um, but it, it was just helping him to discover some of his raw talents. And I think one of the things I find really interesting is Rodin's teacher. And, oh, I am not going to get this right. Horace Lecoq de Bois Baudron. No idea. <laughs> His teacher, Horace, um, (laughs) his teacher at that school, um, Horace, with a last name I am not going to be able to pronounce. It looks phonetically like Boys Badron, but it's probably like Um, 
I cannot get any Horus. names right. It's Boris. It's Horus. Horus. Um, his teacher, Horus, was actually a, he was a skilled artist and he was teaching. And one of the things that he was doing was very unusual for for art um, education at that time, he would encourage his students to visit the Louvre and study works of art and then draw them. And there's nothing really, nothing really unusual about that part of it, except what he would do is tell them to draw them from memory. He would say, go look, study, take it in, um, and then come back to the studio and draw what you remember. And the idea there was... As you are working from your memory of those pieces, it kind of reveals what are you focusing on and what are you drawn to in those pieces. And what he was really doing, which is very progressive for for that era, he was encouraging students to find their own voice and to find their own unique lens and their own way of looking at and interpreting these works of art and developing their own style. I really loved when I, when I read about that, that was, uh, when I saw that, I was like, that's a very, I, even today, I think that's a piece that we could utilize in, in even a modern education of, of like having students, like not just saying you should memorize this or you should be looking at this, but what do you notice after having left a piece of anything, whether it's art, whether it's of literature or music, what do you remember? And like, that tells you about you. It was, that is, you're right. It's brilliant. It's, it's it, very progressive. It, it really is. Like I say, he was doing that in the 19th century, and I am in some ways doing that kind of thing, or at least going with that mindset and philosophy today. Um, and I, I think that was really cool. And Rodin, later in his life, you know, after he had found success, he spoke very highly of that teacher and the influence that he had in helping him to develop his style, because Rodin's style did not always meet with the conventions of the time. It was not always what was expected and appreciated early on in his career. Um, and that's why, as I said, he was, re- he was rejected by Beaux-Arts multiple times. Um, but he persisted. He spent about two decades in, um, in sort of like we would call the industrial arts or commercial art. He was making decorative embellishments for architecture. Um, From what I understand, he was a lot of stuff with like things that would go on staircases and above door frames and, and on the roof of buildings and stuff like that. He was very carefully and meticulously crafting those sorts of architectural embellishments. And that's a really difficult thing to do. Like a, a lot of people mm-hmm. don't appreciate, like there's, there's not a lot of margin of error on those things. Like you have to get the symmetry just right on those, those embellishments that flare and all of that. And so in that process, as a craftsman, he was really, he was really developing that eye for detail and precision work. And that would come up later in his life and in, in his career, Because um, in addition to that, like some other influences, like he did for a while consider leaving arts. And it's funny, he tried to join the church and the priests there who later went on to become St. Peter, Julian, and and Imard. Last names are really hard. St. Peter, Julian. 
PJ, um, St. Peter you're, told him, like, not you're, that Saint Peter. you're not great as a, as a priest. <laughs> Stick with the sculptures. Um, uh, I mean, he, he wasn't wrong. Like, Rodin went, went down in history as a great sculptor, but he was kind of trying to make it in other fields and just not finding a lot of success, not finding a lot of traction, but other people did see some potential in him. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. And so he continued work as a craftsman and studying art. He studied under, he took more classes under uh, an animal sculptor, Antoine Luis uh, Beret. Mm-hmm. I feel like I get the first names and the last names elude me. But <laughs> from from that animal sculptor, he was learning about active poses and the movement in the figure and the muscular structure. Mm-hmm. And again, all of this will come up later. Because that's kind of when I think about Rodin's work. What was he doing? He was capturing sort of the physicality of these people. He was also showing a little bit of like the process of the creation. We see some of his marks and there's this physicality to his sculptures and a sense of movement in their poses, which was different from the standards of the day. At that time, sort of historical pieces were what were what was prized. You know, like mm. it was the epic monumental stuff of figures that were larger than life in every way you can interpret that that tone. Like they were not just like physically large and imposing, but they were they were these idealized forms of the heroic figure, you know, mm-hmm. larger than life tales, sort of. Yeah, and you can really see, I know we'll get to it in a little bit, but like I, what you're making me think is those grand postures, like posturing, like yeah. posing, or like even if it was an active piece, it was a, a postured piece. Whereas these these pieces, like well, whether it's the one we're talking about today or uh, Thinker, it's these small movements that indicate a very larger, much like much bigger emotion. Yeah, um, and, and and it's very interesting because he 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 almost zooms in on a detail in order to zoom out on a greater, greater piece, um, which is not your monumental, not your grand heroic piece. Well, because those grand heroic pieces were very staged and carefully arranged to make that figure seem iconic and, you know, grand. And what he was doing was it's the difference between like your school picture and the snapshot you take with your friends. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. His stuff was very much like capturing the movement and the gesture in a moment in time. And I think part of that is because his studio practice, and I do not know how he did this, but in his studio, he would tell the models, walk around. I'm going to capture you while you're moving. 
and like he did it successfully. Whereas the standard for the day was like, don't you dare move because I need to capture exactly what you're looking like in this pose. So let's find a pose that you can hold for a sustained period. Whereas what he was doing was much more what we would call like gestural work, where he's just quickly capturing what he sees of the person in motion. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I didn't know that he, that, I mean, like even for painting, they're usually like sit still, you know, and it's not uh, to think of a sculpture actually telling them to move and, and picking up on those small details of, of musculature or of, of movement in the, in the cloth of their clothing. And, uh, I've, I've not heard of that. So that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I mean, in painting and drawing classes in our figure study classes, we would often do gesture drawings, which are like these very quick. And I'm talking like a matter of seconds. The, the longest I've spent on a gesture drawing is like a minute. Um, and we were just trying to capture like the movement and the big pieces doing the, the big movements with your arms and capturing what you see very quickly. He was doing the equivalent of that in clay. Um, which again, like I said, it's, it's a little bit different from certainly the, the standard practice for the day and different from what I'm, I was learning, you know, mm-hmm. well over a hundred years later. Um, but the final little bit that I think is really important for understanding his, his formative experiences and his education and what informed his work and his style is In 1875, he traveled to Italy for two months and he was just captivated by the work of those like Renaissance artists like Donatello and in particular, Michelangelo. And, you know, he said he was like Michelangelo sort of helped to free him from like the constraints of the academic mindset and the the traditional academic approach to to sculpture. Um, and I definitely see that in his work. It feels like a next evolution of the type of thing that Michelangelo was working towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, around this time, he began working on the Age of Bronze, which was a life-size statue of a male figure. And the thing I find really interesting about this is it's one of those situations that it's a story that feels very contemporary and familiar. There's a little bit of a controversy and that's how an artist makes a name for themselves. So this work was so good. It brought him attention, but also accusations of cheating, which for me feels a little bit absurd to think of like, what is cheating when you're creating a sculpture? Because you can use any tools that are available to you. Like for me, it feels like the only way to cheat is to put your name on someone else's work. Like aside from an act of plagiarism, it feels like anything's open, open ended, you know, because when we think about like, if I asked you to draw a straight line, you'd get out of ruler, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so, yeah. Uh-huh. So it's like, where does that boundary come where you feel like, Oh, that's too far. That's not enough of the artist's hand. Right. And that, that would be to, like we wouldn't have movements of art. We wouldn't have like those artists who come from a, 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 a master teacher and like, you can see elements of their pieces and no one ever is ever like, Oh, well he cheated off of his, his like as an apprentice, he just took that style and went with it. So he's cheating, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know, like that. No, we would never say that. And we would never say that, um, 
you know, it, it, even if you take it outside of art, if you just, like even if it's, if it's movies or it's uh, even like collective thought about, hey, this is how we're going to be leaders in businesses. And like, yeah, yeah, we all should like be like more servant leaders. Like, oh, no, you're cheating off of that guy. Like, you know, yeah. that's, like, you're, you're always building upon and not cheating yeah, by and, using somebody else's. Yeah. And it's like, you know, when I'm working on a portrait of somebody, I take a picture and then I, you know, I might use a grid method to break it down into smaller, more manageable chunks. But I'm working from a photographic reference. I don't like I don't just transfer the photograph onto the canvas. But honestly, even if I were, I wouldn't necessarily feel like, you know, like when Warhol was making his silk screens, he was using photographic emulsions. And I know historically that's long after the Rodin period that we're talking about. But the accusation of cheating in this was they said this figure was so realistic. They thought he must have made a cast of a live human being. (laughs) <laughs> which like is an incredible compliment. Yeah. But then you start to think about like, okay, so a cast of a, of a live human being would be out of bounds at the same time. What were the standard studio practices for that day? Well, you would have one sculpture, the person whose name we all know would sculpt something out of clay. And then their studio assistants would, take that model and make a larger rendering of it and then they would cast that in like they would make a plaster cast mm-hmm. of it and then they would you know assuming it's all good they would cast it in bronze or something like that whatever the whatever the ultimate material is going to be so like making <laughs> casts of things was already a part of the process even having yeah. other people's hand in the final work was a part of the process to me it it feels like kind of an odd line to draw. Um, and again, maybe this is because I came from from an educational background where when I was learning sculpture, sculpture, I was making casts of things and then I was taking those casts of things and reassembling the pieces and, and you know, um, spoiler alert, that's along the lines of what Rodin was eventually doing and part of his innovation and part mm. of his, his mark on history and like modern sculpture. I mean, there's a reason he's considered the founder of modern sculpture. He was mm-hmm. using some of those techniques, but he did deny that specific allegation that he made a cast of a live person. It was just a very, very meticulously rendered sculpture. I would think if I were Rodin and I, you know, don't have like primary source documentation to back this up, but just my own speculation. I would wager that was a part of the reason that his later known his later works left a little evidence of process in them. Mm. You know, we can see some of his mark making. We can see some of like those thumbprints and stuff a little bit in there. And there's this modern idea of like truth to materials. The idea of like we're not trying to create a person. We're trying to create a sculpture that represents a person. And so Mm -hmm. we embrace the artificial elements of it and embrace the process. And he showed the process in his works, especially his most celebrated works do have some evidence of that process. And I would imagine accusations of cheating would probably leave you thinking like, 
okay, I'm going to make sure that I always leave a thumbprint so people can see like, no, this was something I sculpted, (laughs) you know? No, no, no. He put a thumbprint on the person and they then cast it so he could just (laughs) prove. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And so I guess now we've kind of gone through the history and what led to his iconic style. I I wanted to talk about one of his great works, um, The Burgers of Calais. This is uh, from 1884 to 1895. Now, I got to say, in my own artistic development, The Burgers of Calais is a piece that really just it it stuck with me when I was in like my freshman art history survey course. Like that was the piece that I, I vividly remember sitting in the lecture hall and hearing the professor explain the story behind it. And it was one where I just, I was captivated by the story and I spent probably like two months after that painting my own version of the burgers of Calais based on Rodin's sculpture. And it was like the first piece that I felt like I'm okay at painting. It's still not like the greatest painting I've ever made in my life, but it was the first painting where I felt like I'm developing a style that's not terrible. And maybe it's not an accident that I got into this art school. And so it's one that's always been kind of dear to my heart. I guess should we let, I'll, I'll let you talk about what are you seeing in this piece when you look at it? What jumps well, out at you? Well, first of all, I, I think having the background on what it was about, like what made it so much more impactful. Like, so, you know, as uh, I just got a, a guy off the street looking at, some sculptures of some dudes like I I did really like I was drawn to first like these the different poses and the 360 of it the the fact that they weren't all facing the same direction or weren't just postured to, to be kind of facing separate directions but it was all this immersive piece um and then I was drawn to like the separate emotional states of each individual Um, and how, like I was saying before, how the, um, the gesture that they were doing provoked an image in me of what that emotion would be. And and so even the guy kind of, that's kind of like scratching his head as he's walking, it's, it's that, um, you know, that, that, that emotion that he's, you know, he's obviously contemplating and he's he's got something heavy and, and just each one of them having their own, uh, just that small little change really opened a lot, a lot. Um, and, and, and it made it, um, very, um, I guess, as I said before, immersive, uh, experience. Yeah. And I think, you know, the fact that you're able to pick up on those emotions, even through the cold read before you might even know the story behind the piece, mm-hmm. I think that's part of what makes it so successful. If you don't know the background, if you don't know who the burgers were, and to be clear, we're not talking about food. Burgers were, um, they were, it was a title in the uh, medieval system. Like the burgers were sort of people of stature in, in that society. Um, I do feel like our audience deserves to know the story behind this. So for sure, I'm going to share a little bit here. The Burgers of Calais is inspired by the story of the people um, 
during the Hundred Years' War, England, um, you know, it was a war between England and France. Edward III of England basically went after Calais, France, after he had a victory um, in the Battle of Crecy. The year we're talking about here is 1346, so quite a while back. Um, And Philip VI of France told the people of Calais, you've got to hold out at all costs. If England were coming into France, like Calais would be the city they would try to land in. You know, it's it's relatively close to the island. It would be it would be a good strategic point for them to to have control over. Um, in World War Two, Calais was a place they considered the Allies making the the run at the continent. At the same time, the um, the Normandy invasion was happening. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So, um, like. Calais was kind of an important place strategically. King of France is saying, you guys got to hold out. You know, this siege is going to be rough, but you're too important. We we can't lose this city. But Philip wasn't able to break the siege and the people were starving. And so eventually they have this parley and they're trying to negotiate a surrender. Edward III offered to spare the people of Calais if they would give up six of the town leaders. And so it's this heart-wrenching situation where the people who were of the highest, like the higher nobility, the higher society, the titled people in the town realized they had to be willing to sacrifice themselves to save their friends and neighbors and to save numerous other people. And so one of the wealthiest of the town's leaders, um, Eustace, Eustace de Saint-Pierre, um, another name I cannot pronounce, he was the first to volunteer. He stood up and said, I will go. And then five burghers, like I said, medieval title holders, um, they were lo- leaders in the community. They joined behind him. And to give an idea of just like how bleak things looked for them, the six of them were told to come out with ropes around their necks and holding the keys to the city and the castle. Everybody was assuming that those six people were walking off to be executed. Fortunately, England's queen, um, Philippa de Hanalt, she convinced Edward to show some mercy and spare the men from execution. Uh, she was expecting a child, and she believed like their deaths would be a bad omen. I mean, they weren't necessarily talking about karma in Europe in, in the 14th century, but it's that same kind of idea. She was just like, we can't be doing something so monstrous. It's going to come back to bite us. And so they were spared. But what Rodin created in his Burgers of Calais statue was a sculpture of all six of those figures. And he shows that brave, heroic first person to volunteer and say, I will sacrifice myself. I will do this for the good of the community. But he also shows like the terror, the, you know, the range of emotions those people were feeling, even though they were doing something that was noble and for the good of other people, it was still a gut-wrenching situation. Mm. 
And he shows that whole scope of emotions. And that's why people hated it when he presented it. <laughs> They did. Um, it it was not like there were some people who got it and saw it as like as this beautiful and and important work of art. But again, what people were expecting at that time was one grand figure, the hero of the piece, a monument to to um, Saint Pierre who who sacrificed himself and led the charge to to do what needed to be done to save the town. And so when I'm, he, I'm yeah. guessing that that's the guy in the, well, in, in the picture that we're, we're both looking at, but I did, I did do some homework and looked at some other, you know, scopes of it. Is that the guy that's like standing, I, I'm assuming with like his hands down and his, uh, his face very stoic looking out. He's stoic. His his chest feels a little bit like like his posture yeah. seems strong. Yeah, you know. Whereas you see other people who feel like they're almost cowering. They're not like they're not quite being dragged out there, but you can see they're not happily going out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's really happily going out there, but there is that range of like some people just like this is the sacrifice I'm going to make, and I'm going to go nobly and some people who like the reality is setting in on what this fate is going to be for them um not to get too dark on it but like that's the mindset that those figures were in and rodan is trying to be true to that moment rather than trying to build up sort of a myth of that one noble heroic figure who saves the day He's trying to show what the real stakes were and the sacrifice and what that really meant for those people who are willing to make that sacrifice. Well, even the, I, I, and what I, lo- I loved it too about it, um, I was able to find a kind of one that you could like 360, you know, uh, yeah. look around, but like there's the, the one gentleman who is, you know, uh, what was his name? St. Pierre. Yeah, I I cannot get it. for this one. It's the it's the first name. It's uh, Eustache de Saint Pierre. Eust- yeah, him. Yeah. Um, that guy. Uh, he he. Um, you know, he's there. But then we have like actual interaction between the two pe- like two people. Uh, we have another in the back. A, a guy kind of like with his arm on the shoulder of another, and it's just they're all so experiencing this collective piece and it's amazing that you have if you just zoomed in on what's his name saint pierre yeah um you would you would kind of get that like kind of one monumental kind of person but the the, the clothing the shackles the ropes would look take away from that but then to see the interaction of all the other of the of the other burgers that are there um is is something, and, and even the the one behind him is the one that's the like most grieved with the hands over mm-hmm. the head. That you have that juxtaposition right there is pretty brilliant as well. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think that's one of the things that can easily be lost is that mm. when you show the full scope of emotions, that strength of that that first volunteer, it shines through because of the contrast that's immediately apparent. 
You know, if you just if you just made a sculpture of the one man standing tall with his chest puffed out, like, yes, he's going to look strong and heroic, but you don't fully understand the stakes and how his conduct differs from other people and the expectations of the time and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I think, like I said, it was one of those pieces that for me just really resonated because of that idea of showing the authentic emotion and the, the true stakes involved in something and the human impact of the drama. It's not just, it's not just like this story from history it's a story that played out with real people who had real feelings. And that's kind mm-hmm. of always been central to my own development and my own understanding of art history. And, you know, who are the people and what are the stories behind it? What makes it matter? Um, and I think Rodan showed us that in a way that no one else at that time was. But yeah, for real. And, and, and I think too, like you see those evidences of his background, like the, all of the things that came into, from what he learned into, into this piece. So you've got that, you know, what you remember is what you pay attention to style of he's able to like almost make you figure out what you're going to pay attention to. And like, so he's looking into the hyper detail of things and not just the overall essence of it. And then the musculature too is really, you know, fine tuned in the arms and in the, in the facial structures and all of that. And and in the turn of their neck Uh, and then the embellishments that he learned from the work he did in in terms of the doorways and stairways and all that is in the clothing and in the, 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 the ropes and such of their wardrobes. And so I just think like it's awesome that you can see so much of that all come together into one piece. Yeah. It, it definitely feels like something that, it would take a lifetime to become mature enough to capture all of that in such a sophisticated way. Mm-hmm. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's, there's a the Louvre joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Okay, because I did see like that they had put it at Stanford it was just on the website I didn't know if it was like on their campus or something like a a reproduction Mm -hmm. of it or or whatever but it really truly like it truly does belong in a monument in a place where like I can't put it outside of that because it's so interactive and real and you've got to be able to interact with it like it should be somewhere where people can walk in between and among the them and it more than any other monument belongs to be a monument. This belongs to like, cause like the fakeness of some monuments that are just blah, like they're just standing there. Like they're there for the high school picture is like, "Mm," but this really is like a capturing of a moment. So it's difficult for me to like put it somewhere else other than in a public place where people could walk among it and remember what happened. Yeah. I mean, like it feels like it should be in the public square. It, it mm-hmm. should be out there. For me, the closest is like the museum, but it should be like it, it, it feels like a museum piece to me it, in, in the sense that it is like so important about the development of art and art history, the development of like humanity and culture and society like this is memorializing 
not necessarily like, oh, the Battle of Calais between England and France in like 1340s was so, so important on the history of the world. But it's just like that idea of like what people did and what people endured. I think that's important for us to understand Mm -hmm. when we understand history is like the human impact of all of these things that we read about. And so for me, it's like a, it's a museum piece for the ages because it mm-hmm. makes that history and it makes larger events make sense on the human scale. Um, but I feel like it also belongs outside of the museum. Like you were saying, it belongs out where people will see it, will encounter it, will contemplate it. And so, you know, I would say in the town square, is where mm-hmm. I ultimately land with it. Even though it's kind of a downer. <laughs> yeah, no, well, but it also isn't though, right? Of like, I was just thinking when you were saying that about what it represents, like you said, like it's not this big battle. This like that we like, oh, the world changed because of Calais and the burgers that gave up. But it symbolizes both uh, sacrifice and it symbolizes grace because it was like, they're going to yeah. give up their lives, but then you also know the rest of the story, which is they were spared. And so, you know, it's like that, like, what are you willing to do for your fellow human? Yeah. Humankind. Why it can speak beyond just, you could put it in any town place. And if they knew the story, they would, they would be able to sit and contemplate the different emotions and different pieces that are there. Yeah, I think that's true. And so I, th- I think that's a good place to wrap it up on. Thanks, Rodan. Thank you, Rodan, for showing it to us. And thank you, David, for taking the time to come uh-huh. talk with me. I really it appreciate it. It was a pleasure. It. Oh, I always love it. I always <laughs> learn so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted. If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.